0: Hydrology is the study of the movement, distribution, and management of water on Earth, including the water cycle, water resources, and environmental watershed sustainability. Hydrologists work with other scientists to investigate how water impacts their respective fields, so meteorologists and hydrologists have a very special relationship. Meteorologists focus on water coming from the sky, and hydrologists focus on what the water will impact when it hits the ground and where it will end up. What happens when there's too much water and flooding happens? Hydrologist Michael Kane is my guest today, and we're going to talk about that. Michael, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Now, this is an interesting show. I tell you how a show can evolve from many different uh, facets. Um, Michael and I were at the American Meteorological Society meeting recently in Boston and got to talking and realized that. We don't talk about flooding enough from a hydrologist perspective on the show. We often talk about flooding from the meteorological perspective, but there's a hydrological component that we thought would be interesting for the listeners. And so here we are. But you know what I'm going to ask now, Michael, since you listen to Weather Geeks, what fascinated you about the science of water and how did you get into it? All right.
1: I always uh, since I was a kid, I was always a a hands on hands on person, a tinkerer. And right now I'm a hydrologist, which is a water resources engineer, which is a branch of civil engineering. Um, And since I was a kid always tinkering with stuff, but I think I was a failed tinkerer because I was the kid in the neighborhood always taking my bike apart (laughs) to see how the brakes would work. But then I would have to pay the bike shop to put it back together. Um, My grandfather was a civil engineer and he saw that I had this tinkering ability and he encouraged me to study it in college, I think. He essentially said, so you can fix all these things, you keep on breaking. Um, in fact, I still have his slide rule in his mechanical drawing kit. So I went to University of Maryland, studied civil engineering, but I really started with um, hands-on stuff, geotechnical engineering, soils and dams and foundations and such, you know, things you could put your hands on. And in the break right before my last semester... I got a letter from school that my class registration had been canceled because oh, I didn't no. have any, didn't have the prerequisites for my geotech classes. So I run back down to campus and I said, "What's going on?" And it figured out they'd confuse me with uh, Michael Kane, who was a freshman. <laughs> so they canceled my classes. We had a good laugh, and I said, "All right, just put me back in the classes." They said, "Oh no, they're full now. You oh, can get wow. on the waiting list." And I said, a waiting list, but it's my last semester. I, I can't take that chance. What else you got? They said, we got two water classes. I said, all right, I'm a
0: hydrologist. And that was, that was where that started. Are you kidding me? What a fascinating <laughs> but potentially tragic story. It sounds like it worked out. But wow, that's, that's really interesting. And I, I was going to mention you did get your bachelor's and master's degree from University of Maryland. Some of the other things I want to highlight. You did three years at FEMA developing flood insurance maps, three years as a research hydrologist at the National Weather Service Office of Hydrology, 25 years at Riverside Technology implementing river forecasts and other systems around the world. Three years at a company called RTI International. And the last 10 months you spent as director of the Center for Water Resources at RTI. Tell us a little bit about your work at FEMA and on those flood insurance maps, because I think some people listening may understand or at least have heard of flood insurance maps. Tell us a little bit about what flood insurance insurance maps are, why you need them and what you were doing at FEMA.
1: Okay, and that was uh, right after undergrad in the 1980s, and there was a a big push at FEMA to create flood maps that are used to identify hazards for the National Flood Insurance Program. So, my job was running models with historical precipitation and streamflow data to determine where is the 100-year flood boundary, and then drawing them on a map. Uh, you know, It was important work, but it's not real-time hydrology. Sure. It's, the maps are used for regulatory purposes. They'll sit on a shelf as a reference. And if someone wants to buy a house or build a structure in the city or something, they look at these maps. And if the property's in a floodplain, either they can't build there or they have to mitigate the impacts. And they can't increase the flood threat for others.
0: Now, one of the things that you mentioned that I want to spend a little time on, because it's one of the most, in my opinion, confusing concepts in science and practice for the public, and that's the concept of a 100-year flood. Can you give the listeners a a 101 on what the 100-year flood is and actually how it's tied to flood insurance? Okay.
1: And I mean, I've heard you on this podcast try to explain the 100-year flood and the 1% chance of, of occurrence flood. And I know people uh, in the public don't necessarily get that, but we would uh, look at either a 100-year rainfall event or if we had streamflow data, get the 100-year streamflow using our statistics to extend um, the historical record. And then we would uh, run that through our models to see over how much land uh, was inundated when that 100-year flood occurred. And then we draw the boundaries and that becomes the 100-year flood event. Now, it's not something that occurs once every hundred years, it really is goes back to the return period. It has a one percent chance of occurring every year.
0: So, I mean, a, a question that I often get is a follow up to that, and maybe you can help help me and others answer this question. You know, for example, here in Atlanta in 20, 2009, we had a what was considered a five hundred year flood event, and so the once I do explain what that means in terms of probability in a given year and that we may be seeing an increase uh, in frequency of those types of events, people will say, well, how do you know we didn't have data 500 years ago? So how do we know this? is? So uh, how do you deal with that question?
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, I could break out the the graph and show them how I drew (laughs) drew the line, but they're usually not interested in that. But we do look at maybe 30 years of, of the peak flow data in each year. And then you can plot that on a graph where the highest peaks will occur less often. And if we can get 30 points on the graph, often we can extend what looks like a pretty straight line
0: or at least a smooth line out to the 100-year period there. Yeah, so I, I think that people don't understand the nuances of how some of these things are done. I, as I find in hydrology, meteorology, and climate, people often will sort of sort of craft a a problem or a question to sort of their sort of understanding of it, uh, and and miss a lot of the nuance that actually goes into the science. And I think that 100 year flood and 500 year flood is certainly uh, in that vein. Now, you had some experience in the National Weather Service as well, more on the research side, I suppose, as a research hydrologist, but. Uh, what are your thoughts on the National Weather Service products that are used in flood warning and flood prediction? Uh, how, how do they evolve and what role do hydrologists play within the National Weather Service?
1: Okay, and I, um, you know, I worked there, it must be 30 years ago, in the hydrology lab, but I still have a lot of connections there. Um, but, and they're responsible for putting out river and flood warnings around the country, and they use the, 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 the most modern models and tools and, and data that are available. Um, they, so, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I, I, I didn't mean to break you up there. Okay. And uh, you had a, uh, the meteorologist in charge on your show a couple weeks ago from Atlanta.
0: Yes, Keith Stellman.
1: He talked about working side by side with the hydrologist in charge at the office, right, you know, an adjoining office right next door. And so every morning there is a meeting of the meteorologists and the hydrologists, and they talk about what they see in the weather overnight, what occurred, what's in the forecast, and then the uh, meteorologists pass on their data to the hydrologists who then run in through their hydrologic models uh,
0: with all the nuance and uncertainty that goes with that, and then put out their river forecast that way and and, and as i think we're we're taping this in late february we're coming out of the wintertime time snowmelt season and into the spring flooding season. Uh, how does winter snowmelt uh, mess things up, so to speak, when it comes to hydrological modeling as we 're trying to assess spring flooding or or does it well we we in the hydrology world think of the models as like
1: a stack of models. So if uh, the rain and in, we inputs to our models are rainfall and temperature. And if it's cold enough, we get snow. If it's not, we'll get rain on the ground. And if we do have snow and it's warm enough, it melts and that's rain into the soil. So there's um, if there's snow involved, we have a model to take care of it. If there's rain on the ground, we have a rainfall runoff model that takes care of it. It puts the water into the river. We have another model which takes the water in the river from one point upstream to another point downstream, picking up inflows along the way. And if we run into a reservoir, we have another model which models the operations of the reservoir. If we have uh, a withdrawal from the river for irrigation, we have another model which takes water out of the river, puts it on the crops, accounts for evaporation, accounts for evapotranspiration, accounts for return flows back into the river, and, and so on. We just keep going downstream until we get to the decision
0: point that the user wants. Ah, so it's a very complex problem, and one I'm familiar with, but I suspect many of our listeners of Weather Geeks may not be. We're talking with water resources engineer Michael Kane, and we're talking about flooding from a hydrologist perspective. I'm a meteorologist, and we often talk things from a meteorology perspective on this show. So I'm quite pleased that Michael actually suggested this show. I want to give him props because, um, you know, he kind of suggested this show and I immediately reached out to the Weather Geeks producers. By the way, shout out to our Weather Geeks producers and the team there that makes this show happen every week. Uh, Do a great job. They wanted me to ask you, actually, this is a question from one of the producers. How does the private sector use National Weather Service river forecast products? And as a a secondary question, is it a challenge when some of the river products can only do observations and not forecasting? So um, you can sort of decompose that question however you'd like.
1: All right. Well, so the the Weather Service does put out uh, river forecasts at uh, several thousand points around the U.S., on mostly on major rivers and with, for the purpose of protecting life and property. But there's also water supply issues. There's inflow to reservoirs that people need to operate safely. You know, you want to keep a reservoir nice and low so you can always absorb any flood waves that come in, but you want to keep a reservoir nice and high so you can put water over the turbines and generate electricity. So there's always that balance and having forecasted of inflows uh, from the Weather
0: Service or any other source is important there. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. That's a great answer. Uh, Here's something that I want to kind of of pick your brain on. Hydrology is also a lot of when push comes to shove. So, for example, what I mean by that, like when an X amount of rain falls in a specific area, then we know it will raise the river and take lake levels by Y. Uh, Is this type of system outdated or should we be leaning more towards a sort of more dynamic or sort of responsive modeling approach or have we?
1: Well, it's, it, it's both. That's it's a great question. It's, but it's important for everybody to know that major organizations like the U.S. National Weather Service and others around the world, they do run complex systems of computer models to forecast rivers. And like large hydropower producers in the U.S., Bonneville Power in the Pacific Northwest or the Tennessee Valley Authority who has a lot of dams and reservoirs, they run the same systems the Weather Service uses, you know, complex hydrologic models. But there's a lot of places out there that require or could greatly benefit from river forecasts that just don't have access to them. Either they're near a river between weather service forecast points or they're on too small of a tributary. And in, in those places, people rely on their staff's expert knowledge of the watershed's response to rainfall. Like you said, when X amount falls, the river level will raise by Y. So w- one quick example, I was in South America talking to a hydroelectric company that was interested in a forecasting system for inflows to their reservoirs. And I asked the guy, you know, how do you forecast now? And uh, I'm not making this up. He licked his finger and held it in the air as if to say whichever way the wind blows, that's how we know. Now, actually uh, he'd been in his position for decades. He's one of those guys who knew exactly how the river's gonna respond to any rainfall upstream, but he was getting ready to retire and his company needed
0: a system to replace his expert knowledge. Very interesting. So I guess one question that comes to mind as I listen to your answer and as I think about the question that I just asked you, I mean, as as meteorologists, we struggle with how to convey information to the public in formats that they understand. I mean, do you think that X falls, Y raises or the complexity Models that some often use. What's better for the public? I mean, I, I mean, I, again, we we often think about things from our lens as professionals, but I think hydrological information sometimes is very complex to convey to public in a way that they can consume it. What are your thoughts about sort of the back end message that gets to the public on on some of these products?
1: It's uh, it certainly can be confusing, especially. Um, I know the meteorology community is into ensembles, and we use ensembles too. Um, in hydrology and and people don't want to hear a twenty percent chance of this or that. They want to know how high is the water going to be at their house in their backyard and is, <laughs> is my basement going to flood? <laughs> exactly um, right so it, it's it's we we focus a lot on the message uh, to communicate and actually, you know we might get we'd get information from meteorologists like a certain amount of rain is going to fall well, that doesn't help an emergency manager know what to do. We need to get that water into the river and we can compute the flow. Well, that doesn't help him either. Well, we can compute the depth of the river. That doesn't help him either. We need to take this all the way through to a map, which shows these are the areas that are going to be inundated as a result of that rainfall. And that tells him which roads, I, him or her, which roads I need to close and, you know, which people I need to evacuate. So we try to get the information out to people as close to their decision point as possible. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash ad free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
0: And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast, and I'm speaking with Michael Kane. He's a water resources engineer and is the director of the Center for Water Resources at RTI International. So this is a very interesting conversation because again, uh, I'm actually someone that does research and sort of applied research at the intersection of meteorology and and hydrology, though I don't claim at all to be a hydrologist at all. But I go and find smart collaborators like uh, Dr. Brian Bledsoe, a colleague of mine at University of Georgia, who's a civil engineer and hydrologist. And we collaborate on things like this. So it's very fascinating to me. I want to talk about our models in, in meteorology there are debates all over twitter about what's better the euro or the gfs so people can name the the major weather models what are some of the major hydrological models that that folks use i'm sure they're not household names to many people but what are some of the biggies that maybe someone has heard of oh well um as i
1: mentioned before there's a a complete stack of models so we talk about Modeling systems, essentially. So there is the one the Weather Service uses, which is the uh, uh, National Weather Service River Forecasting System. It's it's based on a a platform from uh, Deltaras, which is a a, a European uh, agency. And inside that inside that system is the stack of models. There's a the snow model. There's uh, the rainfall runoff models called the Sacramento Soil Moisture Accounting Model. There's various routing models. Um, even mul- multiple types of reservoir models. Um, other places that have their their own models are the Corps of Engineers. Their Hydrologic Engineering Center has their set of models and they all start with HEC. So we fer- refer to HEC-RAS for water in the river or HEC-HMS for water across the soil um, and HEC-RES-SIM for the uh, reservoir simulation models. And, and there's uh, other places around the world uh, in England and in, uh, throughout Europe And even other entities in the United States that have their own types of models like that.
0: Yeah, I I know even as a uh, project that we were on at the University of Georgia with the Department of Energy, we were using the HSPF basins modeling system in that project, as I recall, several, several, several years ago. But it definitely came to mind. I want to pivot the flooding now. So we have these large-scale, long-term, riverine-type flooding, and then we often have short-term flash flooding, the type that we deal with in urban areas, for example, or, or in rural. From a modeling standpoint, which is the more difficult to forecast? Absolutely, the short-term is, is more
1: difficult to forecast. And I, If we think about the large, large-scale modeling, I think it's easier because little assumptions and little uncertainties kind of get washed out. If you think about flow in the Mississippi River, it's 2000 miles long from Minnesota down to New Orleans. The water can take three months to get down that distance and it's being measured at gauges all the way. So if you're looking at the forecasting the Mississippi River at New Orleans, it mostly involves looking at what's already coming down the river rather than worrying about that five minute rainfall that occurred on Bourbon Street. Short-term flash flood modeling requires everything on a finer scale. So the the resolution has to be much smaller for where the precipitation is going to occur. The basins are much smaller. We need much finer time steps, and we need really accurate precipitation data.
0: Yeah, and that's something I spent a good deal of my career at NASA thinking about, how to provide accurate precipitation measurement from space, because we don't certainly always have good gauge networks or uh, radar, particularly in some other parts of the world, for example. A question that comes to mind as we think about sort of forecasting flooding, and I know we do it. How far in advance can models predict flooding? For for example, let me let me pose an example. Let's say we have a hurricane O Harvey that's approaching uh, Corpus Christi. This is before it stalled out over over Houston. How, how, do, how do we go up? What's the process there? I mean, how far out can we initialize that thing? And what kind of data is going into the model in terms of producing a flood forecast for Corpus Christi at landfall for a storm like Harvey? And then take that further, uh, what's going on as we sort of get into sort of these long-term flooding events like we saw with Harvey once it stalled? Sure. And in many
1: cases, uh, like numerical weather models, I think uh, hydrologic models are continuous, You know, we keep track of model states all the time. Um, And a model state, uh, I think for like a weather model, would be uh, pressure and temperature and and moisture and such. And in the uh, uh, hydrologic model, the model states are how much water is in the soil, how much water is in the river, how much water is in the reservoir. But when people ask, how far out in advance can you forecast the river? You know, I always say, I don't know. How far out can you give me weather forecasts? <laughs> right. Because that's what drives everything. Right. So we can go as far out and as, with as much uncertainty as the weather can. And we, we completely rely on the MET forecasts. So as, even as you provide us ensembles of weather data, we'll run each member through our models and produce an ensemble of stream flow.
0: No, yeah, and that's a great point. And, and, and general sort of general wisdom suggests that our model forecast for weather, probably pretty good out to about the 10 to 14 day time frame. There was a recent study out of Penn State University that suggested 10, 10 days is about the real reliable sweet spot. Uh, and that's just because of the physics and going back and studying some of the things that Lorenz talked about in terms of nonlinearities and chaos, this, uh, chaos theory and this so forth. But it's certainly something that I, I think the public should be aware of because I see increasingly out there and on Twitter or social media, people posting three and four week forecasts or three week forecasts saying, oh, that hurricane's going to hit in three weeks or we're going to have a snowstorm in three weeks. Um, people need to understand. And I think many of the Weather Geeks listeners do understand this. That there are certainly some limitations and increased uncertainty the further away you get from the initial condition in the, the model. So no. correct. But it does seem like uh, the
1: hurricane forecasting is getting more and more accurate. As we go through time. Oh, you it know,
0: absolutely we, is. In uh, fact, the track forecast, particularly, I mean, there is data from the Hurricane Center that shows that, you know, a three or four day forecast today is as good, you know, as a, a one or two day forecast was in the seventies. So, we, and that's directly related to uh, increased model resolution and speed. It's uh, data assimilation, more satellite information going in on atmospheric conditions, sea surface temperature, various things. So, we certainly know that that. And for, exa- for example, with our uh, with Andy, in 2012, the European model sort of detected that hard left turn uh, probably about eight, nine days out. So we certainly see that happening. One thing that's a little different about hydrological models or flooding in general, and I I was actually just talking about this on another uh, taping of the podcast for a different show, flooding is not just a function of what falls from the sky. I mean, I, I know that there's urban infrastructure, impervious surfaces. What are some of the other non-meteorological factors that influence flood? And I've heard you mention things like soil moisture, but what about some of the sort of anthropogenic or human related factors? Uh, of course, the the biggest
1: one would be a, a dam that completely blocks up the river. Um, and then. Uh, uh, other impacts are, uh, as you think of the soil, water uh, rainfall would sink into the soil where we've paved that over and put buildings or parking lots or things like that. That uh, increases the volume and the, uh, the severity of floods that may occur because water doesn't have time to go through the soil. It just runs right off quickly. Um, there's a, a, a lot of studies now on, on looking at how um, agriculture impacts water supplies we have some agriculture which is fed directly from the river and uh, there are some return flows that occur that i mentioned before and we, we we in order to get a really good picture of exactly what's ending up back in the river we need to model those the agriculture and things like that as well
0: And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Michael Kane, a water resources engineer and hydrologist. He's the director of the Center for Water Resources at RTI. I want to stop right there before I move on. What, what are you up to at the Center for Water Resources at RTI? What What are you What are you doing there?
1: Uh, if If I can give a little bit about uh, about RTI's background, please, I'd like please to do, do. that. Yeah. Um, it, RTI stands for Research Triangle Institute and we are headquartered at, in North Carolina. Uh, we've been around 60 years and, and the motivation for our work is improving the human condition by turning knowledge into practice. We're a global institute that focuses on public health, international development, food security and agriculture, and environmental sciences. And so if water is an important part of all of those disciplines. Uh, one example, we might support our public health group. They're doing research on the Zika virus which is transmitted by a specific type of mosquito that breeds in standing water. Well, we can help with reservoir level data. As reservoir levels go up and down, they create, or they can dry out, mosquito breeding grounds. I mean, that's a pretty cool connection for hydrology that I hadn't made before Uh, I joined RTI a couple years ago.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting, I think that's one of the things I see across meteorology as well, and hydrology and water are very similar. It touches almost every aspect of our lives when you think about water from agriculture to infrastructure to transportation systems, public health. So yeah, you're you're right on in terms of, of how there are so many connecting dots in our system. And I, I wasn't familiar with the Center for Water Resources at RTI until, until I met you, and I did a little background poking around because I was curious uh, uh, and uh, as we decided to have you on. And and as we decided to have you on, I know you sent an email to our, our Weather Geeks production team. And in that email, you posed a good topic for discussion. So I want to discuss it. You said hydrologists versus meteorologists. And I'm picturing a, a a boxing match there with a, you on one side and, I, and me on the other side. Of course, it's not really like that. But this is a classic battle. And uh, on the one hand, you've got the hydrologist saying, why can't you give us the precipitation information we need? And on the other hand, the meteorologists are saying, why can't you use what we give you? <laughs> How does this battle affect the emergency management community and those that need to make decisions from flooding? Uh,
1: well, it, it, ex- exactly. And I mentioned that as the, the classic battle. And it started when I was at the uh, research lab at the Weather Service. Uh, we had research meteorologists just down the hall. And uh, a hurricane was coming. I remember it was 1989. It was Hurricane Hugo. And all the meteorologists are on the airwaves and none of the hydrologists. And we'd say, hey, you guys, rainfall is only important. After it hits the ground, why are you getting all the press? And they'd say, well, you <laughs> couldn't do anything if we didn't tell you how much it's gonna rain. And we'd say, all right, so tell us how much it's gonna rain. Don't And over my specific watershed, and don't give me probabilities, give me the number. And they'd say, well, look, we got the best models in the world. You guys, you guys go away. So it is, it's a good natured back and forth. Um, but when it comes to getting down to the emergency management level, it, there is, it, it's, to watch that type of teamwork is amazing, uh, especially at like a river forecast office, which is co-located with a weather forecast office. Just the way they communicate like that is, um, at, at crunch time is, is really impressive. We put a forecasting system in El Salvador after Hurricane Mitch hit there in the early 2000s. And we, uh, as part of a U.S. uh, aid project, we set up a weather forecast office in an adjoining river forecast office, and we told them how to do the training, and we we gave them training and told them how to do the forecast and such, and I went back to visit a few months after the initial project was over. And the hydrologist said, oh, we must be doing something wrong. They're always complaining we can't use what they give us, and... And and we complained that they can't give us what we need. And I just, I stood back and I said, all right, well, congratulations, you've reached the
0: international standard of hydrometeorological communication. What would you say, how would you answer the question, is flooding getting worse because of climate change? How how do you answer that question? Because it's, it's not an easy question to answer. I know I was on a attribution study for the National Academies. And we kind of left flooding out of the report because, as we've said in this podcast, flooding's not just a function of what falls from the sky. Now, we did focus on the trends in increase uh, in heavy rainfall events, the top one two percent rainfall events. But uh, whenever someone asks, "Are, are floods happening more often and increasing because of climate change?" I, I find that question a little bit challenging. How do you deal with it? It it, it is challenging, and it's.
1: The, b- the bigger question is it, the meteorology seems to be changing. It's it, the, the weather events are getting more severe, um, whether it's drought or um, hurricanes. And if you in thinking about it, you know, the, the infrastructure we have in place, the reservoirs and levees and uh, water control structures and such, they were designed and built 50 years ago. And they were built for a different climate than we're seeing now. So we're always getting asked now, you know, is, is are my, are the levees high enough for that next flood or will there be enough drinking water available for any for my city where we do? We weren't asking those before because they were designed for what we expected. But things are changing and they're changing rapidly enough that we have to ask those questions all the time now.
0: Yeah, I, I often talk about this a little bit, this assumption that much of our world was engineered under the assumption of stationarity when it comes to the, the rain systems of perhaps uh, the 1950s or 70s. There was an assumption that it would rain like it did in 1950 in 2020 and that's just not the case so mm-hmm. uh, that's a very good point that you make I want to ask you to put on your sort of crystal ball or put on your sort of if you could sort of have anything you wanted as a civil engineer or hydrologist what do you need for the optimal flood forecasts what 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 are what's what's missing is it better models better observations uh, some type of new discovery and computing technology what what's your crystal ball on that
1: Wow well there's so much stuff going on now and it, which comes first do I need better data uh, or do I do I need to build a new model which can handle the better better data um, I, we we need both and it what we need is uh, finer spatial scales and finer time scales. And then we need faster computers to run those models because they can they could chew up a lot of CPUs. Um, and we need, and we're doing better with this, better communication systems. So once we have those models run and we have the data out, we need to get it out to the, the people who need the information in a way they can use it. You know, like I mentioned earlier, don't tell the emergency manager it's going to rain two inches. Give him the map and show him exactly what what needs to be done.
0: I want to get your opinion on something because one of my former doctoral students, Dr. Amanda Schroeder, who's actually uh, a hydrometeorologist at the National Weather Service Fort Worth office, she and a group work with uh, Russ Schumacher at Colorado State University on a project called SPREAD. And they have been exploring and investigating the idea of a flash flood index or scale, very similar to the Fujita scale or the uh, Saffir-Simpson scale that we use in hurricane, it's been a challenge. I mean, what are, what are your thoughts on scales in general and whether we need something like that in the flood? Because let's, let's be honest, when people hear that there's a Cat 4 hurricane coming more, they perk up. Or when people see a tornado, oh, what was it, an EF5? So these scales are in the psyche of the American public, uh, but there's there's no flood or heat scale. What are your thoughts on these scales and how are, are their efficacy in flooding? Uh, th-
1: th- that's, that's interesting. I am not familiar with that, uh, with the, the scale you're talking about here. At, I mean, I'm sitting in the studios at Colorado state university. Uh, I'm not familiar with that that research that's going
0: on. There. It's a, it's a, just, uh, just as a reference for the listeners and for you, uh, there's a publication, Amanda Schroeder is the lead, lead author on that. And they've, they've been working on a flash flood severity index of some type. Uh, and I, I spoke to her recently and, and, and the reason you may not know about it yet, it's still sort of evolving work, but, uh, irrespective of that specific scale, do you see scales as a, tool that could be valuable in warning and communicating floods, or is there too much else going on to sort of uh, put it into one number?
1: Well, I would assume that a, a, a scale would include uh, it, it's derived from enough information to uh, give people an idea of what to do. But we also need to uh, couple with the scale. Like, look, if the if a, a flash flood scaling is a two in this area, this is what could happen and this is what you need to do. We need to you know pass off not only the Uh, The scale information, but also the action that goes with it. But I think that's good because it could simplify things uh, for people. I I know there's a danger, I need to be more aware, or I know there's an imminent threat, I need to get out. That type of, uh, of action could certainly go with scales like that.
0: Yeah, I think the challenge that I've noticed in some of our own research is, and I saw this a little bit with Harvey, I heard people after Hurricane Harvey and the flooding saying, oh, it rains in Houston all the time. We've dealt with flooding Uh, from a a messaging standpoint, uh, anomaly events. I mean, we know that Harvey was not the garden variety flood, although people have this so-called normalcy bias where they in that part of the country. say we, we get floods all the time in here in Houston. What's the big deal? But yet you had this anomaly event with 50 plus inches of rainfall in a few days. Um, is that a challenge in just the flood world in general, because of the nature of how flooding can be sort of episodic and sort of very rapidly in the case of flash flooding, but then you can also have these rather sustained hurricane flood events like Florence or Harvey, or even Imelda last year.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, we, uh, we calibrate our models on historical data, and they are either physically based models or they're conceptual models that, that follow physical properties. And if an event occurs that's outside the data we had for calibration, you know, our models may not be as accurate as we would like. Um, hopefully, because we're doing physically based, we've got a really good shot, um, but the models may not be accurate. And then you mentioned the episodic nature of it. People think, oh, you know, it, it hasn't flooded in a couple of years or we had a hundred year flood three years ago. I got 97 more years that's not to worry right. about it.
0: Yeah, that's what, that's really why I wanted to focus on that that earlier because I think that's, I mean, you know, we, we kind of make light of it as scholars because we understand that it's not that way. But candidly, that's how a lot of people think about these things. And we have to put ourselves in the mindset of the people we're we're serving or trying to warn or communicate to. Uh, This has been a great conversation, Michael. Thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. But before I get out of here, it is time for the Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist, superstar, great geologist, or weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Alec Krautman. Alec is a management and program analyst for NOAA's National Environmental Satellite Data and Information Service, better known to us as NESDIS. He was nominated by a co-worker who wrote Alex weekly and sometimes daily NESDIS briefings were always a highlight for the NOAA headquarters staff. And each time you learn more and more new information about weather, satellites and more, his curiosity and passion for science and weather shines through every day. Congratulations, Alec. Now, if you know someone that is deserving of being our geek of the week, check out our social media pages on Twitter or Facebook. Michael, Thank you so much for joining us on, on the Weather Geeks podcast. Hey, can people find you out there on social media or any websites you want to uh, put out there?
1: I am. Uh, the RTI website is rti.org slash CWR for Center for Water Resources. And you can find me on Twitter at mkaneco, as in uh, I'm the Michael Kane in Colorado.
0: Very good. Thank you again for joining us. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepherd from the University of Georgia. We'll see you on the next episode of Weather Geeks.